You're listening to KXOB, Ocean Beach, where Constancy is the spice of life. Welcome to Beach Cop Detectives, a Terrier's Podcast, Episode 9, Pimp Dad. I'm Randy Laird of the TV Dudes, and with me today is Tom Feaster, artist on the upcoming Grand Passion from Dynamite with James Robinson, and also working with actor John Ross Bowie on his Love is Love story in the DC IDW collection coming out in November. And John Ross Bowie has a tangential connection to Terriers. Yes. His wife plays Maggie. She is played by Jamie Denbo. You were saying that you've been sort of exchanging emails and uh, maybe a little embarrassed by how much you've been saying, I love your wife's work from six years ago. I don't know him well enough to feel totally comfortable, but I did make a fool of myself when I sent him an email saying, I just realized who your wife is. I'm a huge fan of that show, and and I'm sure I embarrassed myself. When did you come to Terriers? When did you first watch it? Were you OG? Did you watch it back in the day? I came to it because I was a huge fan of The Shield. I think The Shield doesn't get nearly enough credit for what a landmark program that was, not just for FX, but also for paving the way for darker, harder-edged storytelling that we see today. I I think without The Shield, you don't get Walking Dead, you don't get Breaking Bad. You You can just go down a list of really groundbreaking television that had the door kicked open for it by the shield. When I saw Sean Ryan had a new series coming out, I, I, I also was a fan of Donald Logue's work in the past as well. He, he's always been a really interesting actor. And uh, so where he goes, I'll, I'll at least go and check it out. So those two together was, you know, was kind of a, a, a don't miss for me. Yeah, same here. And then Ted Griffin's name being attached because I'm such a huge Ocean's Eleven fan really just had me on board. So today we are talking about episode nine, Pimp Daddy, which is written by Sean Ryan and also Kelly Wheeler, who was someone we're going to have an interview with uh, on this podcast. And she was a writer's assistant and a production assistant who basically was in the writer's room as sort of the board girl and was very involved in the show and loved the show and became a writer's assistant and wrote this episode with Sean Ryan. And it's directed by Adam Arkin, who is a phenomenal actor and director. And I think that this episode has just like all the Terry's episodes, some really beautiful direction. The, the opening scene alone uh, just breaks your heart. Just yeah, absolutely that, breaks your heart. That, that opening scene where we, we cut into the house and the house from the outside looks the same. And I don't know if you noticed this. I watched on one of my many watches. I realized that's Hank's blue pickup out front. And he's had that thing for a long time. And then we cut into him and he's singing to Gretchen a, uh, his own little cover of Rufus Thomas's for sentimental reasons. I love you. Donald has some decent pipes. I got to say. <laughs> yeah. He pulled it off. Well, I, I think he's kind of a, a hobbyist musician. I've seen him play guitar a few times. I, I believe that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he, he definitely got more talent than we've, we've seen on the screen and we've seen plenty of talent on the screen. So, uh, he seems like one of those Renaissance man type dudes. But he and Kimberly Quinn, who are playing Hank and Gretchen, in this series, we've mostly seen them at odds with each other. They're strange. They're awkward. Hank is more in love with her at this point. So to go back and see them play this sort of easy intimacy, I was really impressed with how well they did that. Yeah, you, you can see, you know, what that relationship used to be. And, and as the scene carries on, you can't help but mourn it alongside of him. It's a tough scene to watch and, and beautifully played. Yeah, because when it cuts to him sort of sitting on the bed, you know, sort of heartbroken, and 
we see where the situation is now. We've just cut away from it. We, and for us, it's fresh because we just saw it. But you get that sense it's just as fresh for Hank. Like he's seeing it in his head every day. Yeah, I think anyone who's ever been in love and has had it not work out, you know that feeling. You carry it like an open wound. Well, speaking of open wounds, we have Hank was shot last episode. So he's got a, he's got a cast on and he's working on his physical therapy to get his motion back, which lets uh, Britt come in and do a little, little bunch of bits. Basically, he gets to uh, ride Hank a little bit about not doing his physical therapy, gets to do his shopping for him. Those don't go there. They do now. Got the whole food pyramid here for you, buddy. You got frozen vegetables, frozen pizza, frozen cookie dough. And uh, in honor of your Celtic roots, I got a box of Lucky Charms with that. Mm, thank you. You're welcome. I get a little tired of pulling off this little racket of ours by myself, so we got to get you off the DL. Disabled list. It's a sports term. Oh, I thought DL meant down low. It does. It's one of those things that means two things. It's a... Uh, homonym? You say so. The two of them have this great rapport and seeing them sort of take care of each other is is really interesting. They bounce so well off of each other. And I have to say, I'm amazed at how clean Hank's kitchen is. I was struck when I was watching it like that. That doesn't look like the way I would imagine Hank's kitchen would look. So I assume that he's had various people coming over to help him with stuff, or at least Katie might have come over to clean up his place for him a bit. Or alternately, perhaps he doesn't really cook. Hank doesn't seem like I would live on takeout and just never uses the kitchen. <laughs> That's entirely possible, too. So he's getting his physical therapy from a guy named Ryan, who is played by Gregory Sims. Uh, he has a lot of credits, including roles on Medium, Numbers, and he was in Real Steel, which I found interesting. And he's one of our clients. He's a guy who happens on these guys, these unlicensed PIs, and is like, hey, I've got a job for you guys. I'll give you some physical therapy your insurance won't pay for. If you do that job, I like the way that the, the jobs always come to these guys. It's always somebody they know or a friend of a friend and that kind of thing. And I also have to say, I love the casting of this show. Nobody in this show looks like they've come in from a modeling gig. They, they look like people that you would see on the street in your life. There's, there's none of that stuff that were, you know, you would watch friends and everybody looks like they just came out of, you know, a gap ad. Mm -hmm. This guy just looks like a dude. Yeah, agreed. And I think the casting is something I've been talking about throughout on this this podcast and noticing more as I watch it is that every little part, and we'll get to this talking about later about the parents who are in here, are really kind of a small part, but they're crucial. And how they play it is really a key part of what makes the show work. And it feels real. Ryan's job for them is that his nephew has an issue. Ryan, do me a favor. In the bed of my truck, there's a uh, pool skimmer. It's a long pole with a net on it. Will you go grab it and shove it up his ass? Your insurance does not cover that. You were doing much better on Monday, Hank. You've been doing your exercises? Masturbation count? You've been obsessive? We're looking for a fuller range of motion here. Sure wish we could do four sessions a week instead of two. Yeah, but my insurance doesn't pay for it, I know. You guys are private detectives, right? Says so right on our underwear. I'll tell you what, I'll give you two more sessions this week gratis. You take care of a little problem for me. I thought I was supposed to be taking it easy. You are. What's the problem? Maybe I can help. I'm the guy got him into this fix. Okay, rest is over. Lift. It's uh, actually not my problem. It's my nephew's. Someone took some money from him. Oh. Now that is the fun part of the story. So the next thing we see is Britt out talking to Cody Bryce, the uh, perennial hapless kid, played by Cameron Moynihan, who, by the way, was on Gotham as Jerome Valeska, one of the potential jokers. And was then on Shameless as Ian Gallagher. So this guy 
definitely kind of blew up after Terriers, which is not an uncommon story either. But he's great as this hapless kid. And, and I have to wonder if somebody in the casting office for Terriers is, is also somehow involved in casting with Shameless, because not only is there Cameron Monaghan, but then Noel Fisher had showed up earlier as the kid who had amnesia and missing persons. And uh, recently I saw uh, Kelly Wheeler had tweeted out a photo of uh, the guy who plays Lip on Shameless, Jeremy Allen White, about, you know, he's destined to be a, a huge star soon. And so I, I'm wondering if, if this show had gone on, would all of the Gallagher kids and their relationships have shown up? It seems possible. It does seem possible. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely I, one thing that another thing you notice as you go through is how much talent came either came up on Terriers or made his appearance on Terriers. You look look past and see all the directors, all the writers, all these stars, and they all went to different things that all connect back to this. Yeah, there there was a quality to every single piece of this show. This morning I was listening to your interview with Donald Logue, and he was mentioning some of the directors who have been through the show, you know, one of them's directing the next Star Wars movie, for God's sake. Uh, just an incredible lineup. There was, there was a really deep bench on this show. Another great San Diego call-out in having Hodads there. That was a great little setting. It was a thing that Mark Bernadine posted about when he was going to San Diego a while back, and I, I saw the pictures of it, and I desperately wanted to go there, but it's like, I think it's an hour outside of where the convention is, and so I never got around to it. But I was so pleased when I saw it in my notes. It just reads, Hodads, with an exclamation point, because <laughs> it's so it's so what Terriers does, which is to give it a sense of place. And they're shooting in San Diego and shooting in Ocean Beach really does make you feel like it's not on a back lot. It's not on sets. It's not in Vancouver. Yeah, there's this little bit of business as Britt is walking in that this guy kind of hassles him about jumping the line. And it's it's just a little throwaway thing. But, you know, ordinarily you watch another show and, you know, cops or the stars, whatever, float in and out of buildings unbothered. Where, you know, this guy's just some guy hassling Brit as he walks in the door. It's, it's a place that's lived in that is inhabited by real people who have agendas outside of what we're seeing in our main story. It just lends more authenticity to that world. Yeah. The background actors on Terriers are definitely more than background. There's, there's little bits where it's, whether it's the guy in the bar and a few episodes back who calls out the rich people when they show up or yeah. later on this, later in this episode when he's talking to Michaela, they're having sort of a dinner at night out on a third-rate taco truck, and it's such a little bit of local character, and all the other hookers are around and that kind of thing, and it just it feels real. It feels lived in. I don't think he appears in this episode, but uh, Kirk Fox, who runs the, the diner that they're always in, great little role. He, there's, there's nothing specific for him to do, but he, he's always there to kind of give them some crap. You know, he, there's no story purpose for him to be there other than just he adds more color to that world. Yeah, you know, you get the sense immediately that Hank and Brett go there. He likes them, but they annoy him. They take advantage of his, his unlimited coffee, you know, all that kind of thing. And yeah, you're right. It's not like it's a story point that could easily have been cut out if they needed to tighten up for space. But because they didn't, it feels like these are guys moving through this world. There's not a, a sense of scene and then scene and then scene. Britt talking to the kid, by the way, Britt is having such a good time being like the lead detective. He's always playing second fiddle to Hank. He's always yeah. basically the kid in the room. And seeing him get to be sort of the knowledgeable one as this kid is very nervous about telling what's going on. And Britt's just having the time of his life. I love watching Michael Raymond James play that. There's a little bit of dialogue where... Um... You know, they're talking about what the transaction was. The kid says she went down there. 
and and Brit just needling him where just just needling him just a little bit. Love that. And so while while Brit is on this case, Hank, who is supposed to be recuperating, gets a call from Maggie, the aforementioned Jamie Denbo, and we think, okay, it's going to be a parallel case. Sort of. It's a, a callback to Jason, Gretchen's fiance, who we haven't really dealt with too much recently. It seemed like he had basically been like, oh, he's a good guy. Uh, Hank was being a bit, bit of a paranoid dick. And then Maggie has found this, this story of, from Jason's past that reveals that Jason Adler's not his real name. That when he was 15, he, his parents ran this daycare. There was this huge scandal about them molesting kids. And some people suggested that Jason was involved in it. Hank is both horrified and I feel like a little secretly glad to have discovered maybe there's a little dirt on this fiance. He doesn't want his uh, ex-wife to marry. Yeah. This is his, his wedge issue that hopefully he can get her back with. By the way, I thought it was interesting. It was eight and a half minutes into the show before they actually ran the open credits. All of that stuff happened before they ever got to the opening of the show. That's another thing that Terriers does. We've talked about too, is that they're pacing, they play around with it. So they'll do long, cold opens. Then they'll do sort of, you get to the end and it's like five minutes from the end and they'll drop a huge plot bomb on you or a huge character bomb on you. And that, that is something they do at the beginning and the end. You never can get too comfortable with where things are going. The story so often is telegraphed. It, it's why I get really frustrated watching TV and movies because so often I, I see things coming a mile away and it destroys my enjoyment of what I'm watching. And with Terriers, 99% of the time, I don't know where it's going next. You covered an episode not so long ago where Britt and Hank end up calling in uh, Gustafson when, you know, they could have taken credit for it. You know, it was the, the thing at the, at the track. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you expect there's going to be the fight scene and all this kind of stuff. No, they just called the cops and it's, it's over and done with. They, they didn't fall into that trap of predictable television. That's one of the things that, as much as I love something like classic like Law & Order, or I'm enjoying the new Lethal Weapon on Fox, I can spot the bad guy in the first 10 minutes. It's whoever the big name in the credits is. And I yeah. know exactly how everything's going to play out. And that does not happen in Terriers. There's always at least some kind of twist. And it's not not the sudden twist of, oh, wow, there's no way you could have seen that coming because we didn't foreshadow it. No, it's all there for us if you're watching for it. It's, it's just such smart writing. One of the things I loved about this show is it was like getting a new Shane Black movie every week. And I, yes. I, I mean that as a complex. I love Shane Black because he does play with these tropes of the detective and then, and, and all that kind of noir stuff from the past. And, and Terriers played with that stuff so well. And it just kept you guessing and, and played with the viewers the whole time. 100% agree. Uh, if anyone who is listening to this podcast and is watching Terriers has not seen some Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, you are missing out. You would definitely enjoy it. Yeah. Let's talk about Michaela, played by RuPaul Drag Race's uh, DJ Shangela Pierce, who has also showed up and played a drag queen on a number of other shows, including Bones and Glee, and played Annabelle in the best of the recent X-Files revival, the Mulder and Scully meet the Were-Monster episode. Another one of these like relatively small parts. It's a, it's a big part in the course of this episode, but this is all we'll ever see of her. But what a fantastic character, just right off the bat. Does she describe herself as a drag queen or how does she describe herself as, as in, an actor? In IMDb listings and all that kind of thing, she describes herself as a drag queen, not tra not a trans person. That's the one thing I was going to mention, actually, in watching this is it's very sensitive to the to the trans issues ahead of its time in ways. However, yeah. she does use the word tranny like three times. Yeah. 
Yeah, I picked up on that too, and I wasn't sure. I, I, I wonder if just in the short six years since this aired, if the if that dialogue would have made it through. J- just as an example of how far trans issues have come in just six years. Yeah, and I wondered that too because every time that the they say tranny, I kind of cringe a little bit. But at the same time, two of the times that that DJ says it, they're some of the funniest lines in the show. And she's yeah. sort of spoofing her own world. And- yeah. Oh, thank you. You sure you don't want something else like beer or soda? Or- you got any heroin? <laughs> I'm just kidding, girl. <laughs> uh, you have a beautiful home. Thank you. Did he tell you I asked him to be my pimp? Huh. No, not yet. Oh, he declined. Though the offer still stands. But don't get it twisted now. The life of a trainee hoe in all private jets and gallery openings. Her interaction with Britt, I think, is really good because Britt is, again, sort of feeling his oats here. He gets to be the lead detective and she is immediately matching him wit for wit. She talks about the, you know, he comes at her with that line about, you know, do you want a party? You guys should get that on shirts. And she says, you guys should get shirts that read Undercover Cop. Everybody be on the same le- same level. Yeah. And they're immediately just, they're right on the same level. There's a, you, when you're, when you're taking away one of the show's biggest weapons, which is Brit and Hank's banter, you want to be able to replace it with something. And I thought the relationship between Michaela and Brit was definitely able to replace that for this episode. I would watch that buddy cop show. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's a shame that we didn't get the chance to see her come back in some form. I also enjoy the line where Michaela goes over to, to pee up against the wall. Nice card. Thanks. It's fresh from the print. Mm. And it's still warm. All right. You can ask me questions. Just uh, follow me up over here. Honey, I got to pee something fierce. I'll just hang back and give you your prep. Oh, it's no worries, honey. You got to be kidding me. Oh, you had some questions you want to ask me? So many now that you can't even imagine. The humor of this show, it's such a funny show. Sometimes I think that part of it gets overlooked. The jokes aren't forced. It all it all feels very natural. Well, yeah, that's something I was just talking about with one of the uh, editors of the show who I interviewed recently, was that this show is not a comedy. It's a drama where the, the comedy lines are sort of thrown away. It's like they're them trying to make each other laugh. It's like comedy in the real world. It's, yeah. you know, if you watch a comedy, none of the characters are laughing at, at their own jokes. That's one of my big frustrations is, is when people are trying to write two jokes as opposed to letting the jokes happen naturally within the scene. Also funny, by the way, is when Michaela gets Brit to basically pose unknowingly as her pimp. <laughs> I, I love the little bit of, you know, her kind of like trying to fix his hair and, and, and clean him up a little bit or, or maybe scruff him up a little bit. You know, she's flirting with him a little bit, but there's she already has a, a comfort with him that is, is kind of surprising for somebody that has just met him. He doesn't seem put off by it. He doesn't seem upset by it. He doesn't seem you, don't, you, you get the feeling like he's completely comfortable with her and who she is, and he's making no judgments about it. And I, and I like that about Brit. Yeah, I think that's a big important part of I think that's why you can slip things like her calling herself a tranny in here and not feel insensitive is because Brit is totally accepting. He's not being jerk about it. He's just like, hey, this is who she is, and I like her as a person. From there, we're going to cut back to Hank's story. Hank is walking on the beach with an old buddy of his, an old reporter friend, who took a buyout, freelances for an online blog, and is a little bitter about it. And he's getting him to 
given some information about Jason. And this is another one of those characters that I feel like had the show continued, we would have seen this guy again. Yeah. They very quickly built a whole backstory for this guy with just a few lines. You know, I, I was sitting there watching it and what he was saying about how the economy has changed for someone in his line of work. If you've ever watched the, the last season of The Wire, it immediately yes. throws you back into the way journalism has changed. And so, you know, what you know about the outside world informs who this guy is. And, you know, he was probably once a, a good reporter who was, you know, working a beat and the world changed out from under him. And he, he doesn't seem bitter about it. He just seems kind of resigned to, you know, I got to do what I got to do. He's there, There's not a lot of difference between him and Hank in that respect in that, you know, Hank is just making his way through the day doing what he's got to do to get by. Same with Britt. You know, running a scam or or running some kind of of a, of a trade to get the things he needs to get done out of life. These are guys who aren't at the top of their game. They're they're all small potatoes, but within this kind of small potatoes world, they're able to help each other out. And this is very much a sort of noir trope. This guy is on the same level as him. He's the you know once great reporter who's now sort of on the outs, but who still has his skills sharp. Who still found the story that most reporters wouldn't have noticed. It's sort of local. It's the kind of thing that, you know, bloggers and big uh, corporate owned media aren't going to really pay much attention to. And there's kind of the same way that Hank and Britt fill a niche in private detectives taking on smaller cases that nobody else would bother with. This guy does the same thing in the reporting world and it feels it feels just right. Yeah, that he, you know, he doesn't have a fancy office somewhere, but what he does have and what what Hank has uh, are relationships. And, and you'll see that later in the episode where. Britt is able to capitalize on some of Hank's relationships to keep working with Michelle on her cases. And then Britt goes home to tell Katie pridefully of, of his case. Hi, I, I didn't hear you pull up. Did you eat? No, I'm sorry. Um, I'm just going to run this out. No, I got it. God, I've been taking out trash since I was 20. Hey, I got a story to tell you. I closed a case today. I'm on my lonesome. Mostly, I just gave a ride to a training hooker so she'd get money back from her job, but still, I closed that bitch. <laughs> cool. I love you. Here, I'll, uh, I'll tell you all about it in a sec. He takes the trash out. He's all giddy that he's made this case. He goes out to take the trash and finds a pregnancy test. And before he can really react to it, there's Michaela again. And she's she's tracked him down using his business card. And we get to see Michaela interacting with Katie, which is also so much fun. Michaela is really good at reading people and putting them at ease. And it makes you wonder if that's how she's survived as long as she has. Because... You you kind of assume that at some point she's got some ugliness in her past, but she's come through and she seems pretty upbeat and positive for where she's at. But, you know, everyone she's come in contact with, with the exception of uh, Shelly, who owes her the 1200 bucks, she's been pretty friendly with and, and everyone seems to like her pretty much instantly. Michaela is, is so good at, at even putting people at least that she has reason to be mad at like reynolds sort of he's apologetic about it but he's very matter of fact about you know we don't really look into we don't use police resources for these kind of cases you know sorry about that and she doesn't get in his face about it or anything she's sort of understanding about it and she doesn't start a fight she doesn't need and i think that's probably a survival skill we see sure i, I think if she had reached into you know adjust his hair reynolds probably would have had a very different reaction than Britt. Yes, exactly. So she hires Britt to look into her friend, Crystal, who was murdered 
Brit's very reluctant to help. And I thought probably the, the closest we've seen Michaela to angry in this episode is when she thinks Brit is turning her down because he doesn't really want to take money from a transvestite hooker. My, my partner, Hank, he's kind of the brains of the outfit and he's on vacation this week. I'm just I'm not sure how much I can help. I get it. <laughs> you can help some pimple faced kid get his pussy money back, but you don't want to help a chick with a dick. It's, it's not it's not that I, I, I just. Uh... OK, you know what? I'll check it out. Her name was Crystal. You were you were just saying about how this is really the only time we see her angry. I'll, I'll go back to Shelley, and she was very clear and very direct about what she wanted for him. And I would think that in that moment, she's also being very clear and very direct with Britt. And again, I don't think she would be able to survive on the streets without also being able to stand up for herself and protect her interests and being clear about what her goal is in a given interaction. So I, I'm not surprised by her comments to Brit. I, I think she's clearly a very smart person. I think that maybe she's playing on his goodness a little bit. She she knows that he's a good guy and he likes her. And I think maybe she might be misreading what his doubts are because she's probably come up against people not wanting to help her because of who she is before and not understanding that that's not who Brit is. Right. She, she knows him and she likes him, but she doesn't know him that well yet to know that he would, he wouldn't do that. And so we, we see them in the police station where Brit and Hank have always been willing to use Gustafson and Reynolds for their, for their cases. And Reynolds is, you know, something sort of incredulous about why they're asking for help. And Brit says, look, I'll, I'll solve a case. He's not lying. He tells him, you know, yeah on Gretchen's part. Because one of the roughest scenes in the show is when he goes to her office. Again, just like Jason, they start off in this sort of this jokey place. And we get clues to what Gretchen does. They never actually tell us what Gretchen does, but she in her past she'll mention the city council in a few episodes. And her office is decorated with an oil spill painting and these keep the bay clean po- posters. I'm guessing she's like an environmental activist activist, something like that. Crusader of her own of her own type, which makes a lot of sense. Hank comes at her with the file, the information that Jason, by the way, if Jason wanted to head this off, he could have headed off to Hank. He could have told him, I told her this on the second date, but he doesn't. He lets Hank go in. And I think the reason he does it is because he's fed up with Hank. He's been nothing but kind to him. And he's like, okay, this is what you do. You know what? You go, why don't you, why don't you go ruin this with your, with Gretchen so that we can have our life together? Yeah. I, I I wonder maybe if if this is to some degree Jace, uh, Jason trying to set Hank up just so he can show Gretchen this is the damage this guy is going to do to our life if you keep letting him if you keep trying to bring him around if you keep trying to force our relationship on Hank this is what we're going to be looking at for the rest of our lives right Hank's always going to be looking for that crack in the relationship what are you doing getting into my affairs. Try doing this one time, Hank. Try asking someone if they need your help. My God. You're more reckless sober than you were drunk. Don't tell me you're protecting me. You're the live grenade in my life. Stay the hell away from my wedding. You're disinvited. 
and stay the hell away from me. Maybe it's a good thing we couldn't have children. So here's my question. If you're in Hank's place, do you do the same thing? Like if you have this information on her fiance and you're this in love with her and you legitimately believe that this guy might be a bad guy, even knowing how bad this is probably going to go, do you do the same thing? Because I think, honestly, I think I go to that place. I think that's where I go. It's not necessarily the smart play, but I think I, I understand why he did it. But he's got a real blind spot with Gretchen. His judgment is is not great when it comes to the people that he cares about. And he tends to make bad choices when he thinks he's doing the right thing to protect the people that he loves. Seeing how this plays out, you know, in that scene with with Gretchen, you know, his his last line to her, it's, it's the only time in the series that they actively dislike Hank. Uh, and it, yeah, I, I was going to say Hank can be vicious. We've seen him mostly turn that on guys like Zeitlinder Burke or, or Lindis, but when he's hurt and lashing out, yeah, he knows where to hurt. And that last line that he, that he says as he goes out is just brutal. And, you know, and I was trying to kind of unpack what that meant in terms of, is it a problem with him? And you know, is that where is that where his drinking started? That he felt guilty that he couldn't do that for her. You know, I, I started kind of going back through the character of, uh, and what we know about Hank's past, and you know, did that inform some of Hank's downfall? Because it, it's clearly something that he knows he can bring out to hurt her. Yeah, you're right, and it's funny because I just thought of what a, what a cold line it was in the moment, but you're right; it says something about the relationship that we've not seen explored yet. He's pulling out something so deep and so painful and so devastating because, you know, he's a wounded animal in that moment because he honestly thought that he was going to come into that room, give her this information, and she was going to fall to her knees thanking him and maybe even call off the whole thing and he would get to ride off in the sunset with her. And now everything has spun around for him and, and all of his expectations of being the hero, and like I said, riding off into the sunset with the woman he loves, all of that's gone. And it's, it's, it's all been pulled out from under him, and he's just completely unprepared for it. And he starts lashing out. It's as broken of, as we've seen Hank throughout the series in that moment. Everything that he thought he wanted disappears from his grasp. Yeah, and it's going to really inform where he is in the next episode, which we'll talk about past the spoiler barrier in just a minute here. Before we do that, just real quick, want to wrap up with Britt and Katie, where we get that elaborate wedding proposal. And it's another heartbreaker because we know Katie's not in the same headspace. And it does this great musical flip where they bring in Rufus Thomas's For Sentimental Reasons I Love You. And it's the actual version. And it's just such a capper to where we started the episode with Hank and Gretchen. It's kind of funny because it calls back to you know in the beginning hank is dreaming and to some degree at the end of it Britt is the one who's dreaming because he doesn't know the reality of that moment he thinks that everything's great and wonderful and he's living his moment with katie in in joy and thinking about the future and and he's he's you're just sure he's daydreaming about the wonderful life that he and, and katie and their child are going to have together Baby Hank, boy or girl, whatever, you know, whatever. (laughs) 
you know, as, as a viewer, you're sitting there watching, you know, a, a wonderful, horrifyingly sad bookend to a, a really well-crafted show. So, if you're still listening, we're about to talk spoilers for episodes 10, 11, and 12, possibly 13, no promises. So, <laughs> if you're listening as you watch, this is a good time to stop and cut back later. So, Tom, I want to start with episode 10, Asunder, which is the next episode, mm-hmm. because Britt and Katie blow up very quickly. Yeah. All that tension that we that we just talked about, it's Britt is not Britt is woken up from his dream pretty quickly. Yeah. And Hank is in a dark place because of the where he is with Gretchen, and he's sort of stumbling through this. Like you say, it's life he was not expecting to have. He thought he was going to ride off in the sunset, and instead, everything's over, and he's just struggling not to drink. And so much of where those guys are at the end of this episode is going to inform the flip that happens in episode 10, where they sort of wind up on opposite ends, where Brit's in a very dark place, and Hank is finally in a in a place where he's uh, he's in a, a juicy case and that's all he needs to keep moving. You know, if you think about it, the last two episodes, eight and nine, Hank and Britt are kind of operating without one another, and so you're you're kind of setting up that Britt doesn't necessarily need Hank to function as a you know pseudo private detective. You know, they're they're more like you know problem solvers than than detectives, I guess. You know, it, it sets up nicely that when the split between Hank and Britt occurs, you kind of believe that Britt could go out on his own and he doesn't need yeah. Hank around. And, you know, we haven't seen our heroes together and working well together for a few episodes now. So when the split happens, you're really not sure, are they going to come back together? Because Brit Brit kind of doesn't need Hank anymore. It's true, yeah. It, it's you're right. I hadn't thought about them sort of setting that up is it, to give the viewers the illusion that oh, we might not have our characters together by the end of the season, yeah, by the end of the series, as it turned out. Yeah, we alluded to episode eleven, which is sins of the past, in which we see what cost Hank his job, what cost Hank his marriage, and Hank and Gretchen. Hank sort of goes after Gretchen in that episode the same way he goes after her here. She had a Somebody in her past who sort of maybe sexually assaulted her, uh, Billy Whitman. Yeah. And Hank doesn't listen to her to just let it go. And we're seeing the exact, he still repeats those patterns because exactly what he does here. Yeah. He, he, he goes completely off the rails and he's, he doesn't realize the damage he's doing to her and to himself and to their relationship in some sort of misguided attempt to protect her. You know, he, he's got a real blind spot with Gretchen in that he can't see that he's lost control. He, he does it with Billy Whitman. He does it with, you know, he does it to Brit when in, in the first episode with the money by just sinking Brit's money into buying Gretchen's house. He, he has no control over himself when it comes to Gretchen. You know, again, I, I come back to Gretchen, I think takes, she has to carry some of the blame of what happens between them in Pimp Daddy because, you know, she she should know by now that Hank can't control himself when it comes to her. And like yeah. I said, he, you know, he's he's deeply in love with her. The idea of her, he, he clearly feels a lot of guilt about the way things happened in the past. And he's trying to protect her. And he just he, he can't see that she that relationship 
whether it's her and it's some sort of codependency thing he hasn't been able to move on from and she has, but uh, he, he cannot see that she is, is like this drug for him that he just goes off on these spirals and it's so damaging for him, you know, in his career and his relationships, he just can't pull it together when it comes to Gretchen. And the same thing when she's yelling at him in this episode about, when you're trying to protect someone, why don't you try and ask someone if they want your protection? I felt like that was a direct call to what we're going to see with Billy Whitman. Then there's what's happened with Jason, which is is kind of heartbreaking enough, like I say, because Jason's the perennial nice guy, and I feel like he doesn't deserve any of this. All, all he did was meet a nice woman, build them a really beautiful house, and propose to her. That's all he did. He didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And he's going to have the most tragic ending in episode 12. And even then, it's trying to be a good guy. He's helping out the ex-husband who investigated him, who's done nothing but treat him like shit this whole time. And he still, because it's the right thing to do, tries to help him out. And that's what gets him killed. And it's just watching the scene with that subtext is even more heartbreaking. You know, he's got to dance a fine line because he's the, the guy who took the hero's girl. Yeah. And you'll want to hate him. And if he was a, a like a mustache, mustache twirling jackass, you know, that you just hated, it would be so much easier to be on Hank's side if Jason was just an asshole. But he's a good yeah. guy, and he's he's good to Gretchen, and he's been more than patient with Hank, and, you know, and even taking in Hank's sister, that's, that's a, a chore into itself. But he's just proven himself time and time again, he's a good guy, trying to do the, the right thing and he truly does care about Gretchen and loves her very much. So, you know, they did a great job of crafting this character who has to dance this line of you, you, you want to hate him, but you have to like him because he's, he's not, he's not a caricature. Let's talk about Detective Reynolds because Detective Reynolds in episode 11, we're going to discover some things that no one saw coming, including the writer's room, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to that interview, but Tim Minear, who wrote that episode, talked about how when when they made that decision was literally as they were writing the episode. And he's told people, he's like, look, I can introduce a cop who turns out to be the rapist, but everyone's going to know that's the guy from the first minute. If we use Reynolds, nobody's going to see it coming. First of all, I've listened to every episode, sometimes twice. So, yes, I, I have listened to that episode, Randy. Thank you. Now, uh, Detective Reynolds, I, I, having listened to that now, it, it almost makes me a little sad because I, I was so impressed with when that turn came. You know, they've kind of set up that he's, he's kind of a dick. He's kind of a dude bro cop. You know, the, the, the comment he makes about Gustafson's out getting his hand. You know, yeah. really? Okay. I, you know, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a slightly racist joke that, yeah. you know, a, a more evolved person probably wouldn't make. And then, you know, if you catch his reaction, Adam Arkin cuts to his face when Michelle makes the comment about her friend being post-op. And Reynolds kind of cuts this look where it's almost like, ew, or, you know, just it, it registers with him in, in, you know, that kind of frat guy away. So you get the, you get the feeling he's not a terribly open-minded guy. He's, he's not 
He's just not a nice guy. But he's not a bad guy. He seems like the banality kind of guy. Yeah. There's there's nothing about him that is mustache twirling bad guy. He's unlikable, but he doesn't seem like someone you would look at and, you know, he hasn't been telegraphed in any way. And now we understand why he hasn't been telegraphed. You know, a, a lot of shows probably would have cut in more shots of him, like leering at a woman bending over or, you know. Just things that would make you feel unsettled with it. Right. They would have given away the game a lot earlier. Absolutely. Uh, even if, you know, if, if they had known. But you know what it reminds me of is going back to the shield, that first episode, maybe in the first few minutes of the shield pilot, when Claudette Wims and Jake Harnes's, uh, Dutch are in the kitchen and there's this naked woman, this naked dead body. And Claudette looks at him and says, uh, do you want to get the uniforms out of here so you can give him a squeeze? And that's what I think of is that Dutch is introduced as sort of this, this kind of nebbishy by the book cop who nobody really likes. And over the course of the series, he would develop and become much more of a character. But if Dutch yeah. had sort of stayed just that guy that he was in yeah. the first episode, then, then that's kind of what Reynolds was. Yeah. That's the, I, I could see that evolution easily. But, you know, he, he was one of those characters that was kind of underwritten. And and they I guess they maybe they gave him more room to play. I, I don't know. I would be interested yeah. in hearing more about what the thought process was with even creating that character. I mean, obviously, they had to give Gus Gustafson some kind of a partner. You know, yeah, I, I just be more interested in, in hearing more about that. So, yeah, this has a notable moment for Hank and Katie with them talking about the pregnancy test and keeping that secret. And Hank and Katie have a very unusual relationship in this show. Yeah. And, and, um, Donald's interview touched on, on some of that, the, the one I just listened to today. You know, I've heard other people that have been on the podcast make comments about how they thought that Hank and Katie might have known each other beforehand. And, and I always kind of got the feeling like they probably only met through Brit, but you know, the way their relationship developed was a little different because Hank and Brit, when they're together, they're, they're being wise asses with each other. They're, they're, they're little boys, you know, cracking jokes. And when they have to talk about serious stuff, it doesn't last very long. And, and usually it's kind of bookended by jokes to get them in and out of uncomfortable moments. Brit isn't a stupid person, but I don't think he necessarily has the same tools that Hank has to talk about his emotions. And when you see Hank and Katie together, they tend to have, you know, real heart to heart conversations. And I, I think that goes through the whole series. They're, they're always having that kind of, a, of a, a deeper conversation than what he's having with Brit. Yeah, they have a different friendship that, that's just as important and just as strong, which is going to be just as heartbreaking when that whole thing falls apart for, for everyone. All right. So let's wrap it up there. Uh, Tom, thank you for coming on and talking with, with me about this. Thank you so much for having me. I, I am a huge fan of the show. I love what you're doing with the podcast. It's such a service to fans like me who miss it terribly. And it's a great excuse to go back and revisit it. And I've been turning as many of my friends onto the podcast as I can, if for no other reason than to try to get more people exposed to the world of Terriers. Well, the grand scheme is to get everyone listening to this podcast and show how much interest there is for Terriers to get that movie made. So, you know. Well, I have told you repeatedly that uh, if they ever want to do a comic book, uh, I would give just about anything to draw it. I, I love that world. I love those characters. 
there there is certainly room for more stories of, of Hank and Britt. And uh, I hope that the, the, the folks who have the rights to those things can figure out a way to bring them back in some form, regardless of how it happens. I just want more of these guys. Back in 2013, I was sick in bed. I was miserable. And I tweeted to Donald Logan and Michael Raymond James. And I said, give me a sign that Hank and Britt are still around so I can drift off into a fever dream with new terriers. And Donald Logue <laughs> tweeted back at me, we are in your kitchen. And then the two of them, including me in the conversation, briefly talked back and forth about, you know, what they were up to. And it was surreal. And so I, my last comment back to them was, thank you very much, sirs. Uh, anytime you want to come back to, or anytime you guys want to come to Atlanta, I'll have bacon and eggs waiting. But then I said, you know, for a few seconds, I entered the world of terriers. Thank you very much. I, this is, again, that was three years after the show ended. And these two guys in the middle of the night tweeted out to a stranger and brought me into their world for a couple minutes. And as a fan of things, it meant a lot to me. Again, that's more reason for me to want to bring people into this world because it's clearly been put together by special people. Agreed. Okay, so for this one, we've got one wedding proposal, one wedding disinvitation, and closer for a transvestite hooker. Hey, we got fun. Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tyann. To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Paul Tyann. Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at n8bliss-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at thetvdudes.com. Thanks for listening.